0: the Magic and Alchemy podcast where we talk about witchcraft, setting intentions, forgotten folklore and mythology. Created by Tamed Wild, Magic and Alchemy is a collection of stories, rituals and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers including myself, Kate Ballou, and my co-host Kristen Listenby. Welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy Podcast. I'm Kate Ballou. And I'm
1: Kristen Lizenby. Another Mercury Day, another excuse to talk magic and ritual with you, Kate, my favorite city witch. What's up? (laughs) In the Witch Web. (laughs) Yeah, I'm curious what listener question did you choose for today?
0: Yes. So thank you to all of you who continue to send these in. We've gotten some really fun questions lately and always, but um, yeah, super appreciate it. And today's listener question comes from Meg Hawthorne. What are ways to store spell jars if soil is too hard to dig into? What do you do when you're done? Kristen?
1: Hmm. Well, I'd say that if you cannot physically bury it um, for whatever reason, uh, perhaps a symbolic burial might be in order. Mm. So, you know, maybe that means wrapping it in a piece of dark fabric that symbolizes soil and putting it in a box to represent Mother Earth or the hole we've created for it. And then putting it somewhere it won't be disturbed. So like, you know, under your bed is a good spot or atop a shelf you rarely visit or even deep within your closet. And If you want to add even more magical significance, maybe place the spell jar in like a large bowl and cover it with rose petals, chamomile, leaves from your favorite tree, um, some herbs and flowers that reflect your intention. And you can keep the spell jar in the bowl, place it on your altar for a few days, a moon cycle, and then either remove it, knowing that your spell is already in motion, or if you can, why not pour everything that was in the bowl, um, including the jar, into a pot, grab a bag of soil from a nursery, and then you have an excuse to add a new house plant to your collection or plant some seeds that will protect and empower your spell jar uh, without having to dig a hole in the yard Um, but Kate, I would love to know what you think, because I feel like this question is made for you. I know you don't do too much digging in New York, so how would you work with a spell bottle?
0: Yeah, I really relate to this question, as you say, living here in Brooklyn. Um, and I love those ideas, um, the sort of symbolic magic of all of that, plus bringing in the herbs and flowers Mm -hmm. and trees. That's, that's really perfect. Um, but yeah, I've done a few different things, though I might adopt your strategy um now. But you know, I've traveled with the jar before and, and buried it on land sacred to me, like knowing that I would be going there soon, or you know, I, I've I've done things in the parks too. Like the parks mm-hmm. are are really beautiful spaces. I do I have felt a bit self-conscious before, so trying to go when I know the park won't won't have watchers on right. my ritual. Um, that's important for me. But those are things that can be utilized. But um so the downside of this is that you can't visit the bottle regularly or leave offerings. Um, this might kind of depend on the intention of the spell. Like that could be a supportive thing to some rituals. But um another thing I've done is I've created a little altar for spell jars. And then I've kind of displayed them in a space that only I go into in my home. And I really love this because it kind of reminds me to uphold my part of the bargain in the spell and working towards the spell um, as it unfolds and, and kind of keeping that front and center in my mind and in my magic. And then I'm able to kind of visit with it and spend spend time with that energy.
1: Yeah, I like those ideas, Um, you know, for many reasons. But one, I just like that there are so many different ways to work with spell jars and Mm -hmm. just like magic in general. And I think you chose the perfect question to preface today's conversation.
0: Yeah, so this is a part two, this episode, and and this series of episodes stems from a series of listener questions about different types of magic. So while labels like Elemental Witch or Green Witch or Ceremonial Magician or Futurist Witch can be fun ways to describe the different aspects of magic that we feel most drawn to, they have deeper roots and connections and different threads to follow for exploration. So, we thought we'd break down a few of these categories and see what's happening underneath the surface.
1: Two weeks ago in Types of Magic Part One, we spoke about green magic and elemental magic, but today I'm wading into the waters of another interest of mine ceremonial magic, something we've lightly glossed over but have
0: never really explored on this podcast. So, I'm looking forward to that. Me too. And I'll be talking a bit about chaos magic, where that term comes from, and how practitioners work with chaos to bring about change.
1: Kate, listeners, did you know that some of the quote biggest names in witchcraft have backgrounds in ceremonial magic? People like Gerald Gardner, the father of Wicca, and Pamela Coleman-Smith, the creator of the Rider-Waite Tarot, or the more aptly named Rider Coleman-Smith Tarot deck, were both in the Golden Dawn. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn is perhaps the most well-known occult society, which feels weird to say, but this magical order, originally based in Great Britain, was really big around the late 1800s and the turn of the 20th century. According to author Richard Smoley in his 1999 book, Hidden Wisdom, A Guide to the Western Inner Traditions, he says, quote, Founded in 1888, the Golden Dawn lasted a mere 12 years before it was shattered by personal conflicts. At its height, it probably had no more than 100 members, yet its influence on magic and esoteric thought in the English-speaking world would be hard to overestimate. The Golden Dawn was centered around the study and implementation of metaphysics and Hermeticism through ritual magic. Hermeticism, in case anyone doesn't know, is based on the words of Hermes Trismegistus and his teachings. According to the British painter, poet, and occultist Ithel Colquhoun in her 1975 book, Sword of Wisdom, MacGregor Mathers and the Golden Dawn, she says, Many present-day concepts of ritual and magic at the center of contemporary traditions, such as Wicca and Thelema, were inspired by the Golden Dawn. We talked briefly about Thelema in our conversation with Chow and Koo a couple of weeks ago, but in case anyone missed that, Thelema is Greek for will. It's a magical, philosophical belief system, and its core teaching is, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. In this phrase, thou does not reference the self, although it may sound that way. It actually references the universe, essentially giving God, goddess, spirit, permission to help us find our true will or purpose. Created by the famous or infamous occultist Aleister Crowley, who was a member of the Golden Dawn beginning in 1898, many people believe that Thelema is a continuation of Crowley's vision for what he wanted the Golden Dawn to be, which is not entirely a true reflection of that order. But going back to that conversation with Chowan for just one more minute, uh, she was telling us how it's been really helpful for her to eat the food and spit out the bones, um, to not throw the slippery baby out with the bathwater when it comes to our magical research and studies, because we're rarely going to love everything about a person, a teacher, um, even a mentor at times. And if we know that, then it's easier to recognize the parts that are meant for us, the teachings that are meant for us, and then give ourselves the permission to leave the rest. So if any listeners out there are thinking, Crowley is horrible. Why are you talking about him? I feel you, um, but I'm trying to learn to eat the food and spit out the bones. And Chowan does a beautiful job articulating this in her episode.
0: Yeah, this is definitely going to be useful when we get to my section too.
1: Yeah. You know, magical history is so interesting, but it's not devoid of problematic characters and situations by any means.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So like I mentioned, Thelema, um, also some elements of Wicca, which you know, as we know is a branch of witchcraft, and many other contemporary spiritual traditions, including those practiced by the Golden Dawn and its members, engaged in ceremonial magic. So what is that? Ceremonial magic is also called high magic. In his book titled High Magic, Damien Eccles says, high magic is mostly about spiritual growth, energetic practices, ceremonies, rituals, and invocations. This is different from low magic, which he says, quote, focuses primarily on earthly wants and needs. In high magic, you'll find lots of visualization and breathwork, energy manipulation, and so on. Low magic, by contrast, uses the inherent natural energies of particular objects—herbs, stones, crystals, etc.—to bring about certain results. These are things these objects do on their own, without any help from us." Crowley described magic as the art and science of causing change in conformity with will. In Philip Farber's book, High Magic, A Guide to Cannabis and Ritual and Mysticism, uh, which is still available on the Tamed Wild site if anyone is interested, he says that while Crowley's definition is too inclusive for many practitioners as it places almost every kind of human activity into the realm of magic, that's sort of the point, right? Farber says, quote, I like the idea that everything we do, from making breakfast to teaching to altering the very nature of reality itself, can be considered subject to the same intent and requirements. Crowley's definition encourages us to work to make every aspect of our lives, every moment, as magical as we can." In ceremonial magic, ritual is one of the most important elements. Practitioners might also engage with astrology and tarot, meditation, divination, alchemy, dreamwork, sacred geometry, Enochian magic, or angel magic, but at its core, the ritual is the catalyst in this type of craft. The Welsh occultist and author Dion Fortune whose work is said to have influenced neo-paganism, goddess culture, and some of the feminist ideals within Wicca, was also a ceremonial magician. Similar to witches who work within a coven, ceremonial magic is often done as group work. It's said that when Dion performed rituals, she did so beneath dim lighting, because according to her, bright light scattered and diluted etheric energy. There would be an altar in the center of the room, decorated in specific colors, symbols, and images. Sacred herbs might be burned, and people would stand in specific locations throughout the room based on their level of magical understanding and ability. Ancient words, the spell, would be spoken. There was likely some chanting. And then energies or specific deities would be invoked.
0: I agree with her. Bright lights are, like, so heinous, first mm-hmm. of all. <laughs> Second of all, I have a copy of her psychic self-defense book, and it's been sitting on my shelf for years. And I think maybe this is my sign to read it. Have you read that one, Kristen?
1: It's definitely a sign to read it. Um, but no, I haven't read it, but I should. Mm. It's it's one of those books that's been talked about so much and one that everyone has like really strong opinions about. So right? I would love to read it. Yeah. And just be able to form my own opinions.
0: Book club. (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) So when you think about the ritual that Dion described, like in a broad sense, it may not sound much different than what many of us already do during our magical workings. Something that does set ceremonial magic apart than say elemental magic or green magic is how they speak the sacred words I mentioned. If you read Eccles' book, High Magic, he shares so many ceremonial spells word-for-word. Listeners, you might have heard of the Lesser Banishing Ritual of the Pentagram or LBRP or the Middle Pillar, and if you're interested in those, the full walkthroughs can be found in his book. Um, But to work these rituals, you have to master the art of vibrating speech. Typically, when the words are said during a ceremony, you don't speak them, you vibrate them. Damien says that we can, quote, verbalize these mantras in a way so we feel them vibrate in our chest, to feel the power of the words actually shake your body, as opposed to just saying them in your normal speaking voice. This is such an important element in ceremonial magic that you will often see and hear it discussed within magical circles as the vibratory formula. In a 2003 article from the Journal of the Western Mystery Tradition, it explains why and how this tradition found its way into these rituals. It says, quote, "...the power of the voice in conjunction with magic dates back to the earliest records on the subject and before." The most prominent place historically linked with the use of words and magic is of course ancient Egypt. It is here that we have many texts on the subject that have now been translated from hieroglyphics and there was a system of magic specifically relating to the use of words. This magic was called Heka, which was derived from the god uh, by the same name, although it might be pronounced Hekao, the spelling is slightly different, um, but this god was the author of spells, incantation, and words of bewitchment. Egypt is considered the cradle of the Hermetic tradition, of the Western mystery tradition, and has influenced many other ancient traditions like the Kabbalah and some of the Greek traditions as well as a number of modern ones. In some ways, ceremonial magic feels more performative than other rites, but that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing, it just is. Again, this takes us back to group work or coven work, where multiple people share and focus their energy on a specific intention to bring about results in a quicker manner than if we engaged in spell work on our own. And although most ceremonial lodges and orders carry more of a masculine or like patriarchal element than, say, the covens we witches are used to, the goddess does make an appearance. When Kate told me she was going to write about Isis for last week's discussion on goddesses of sex and war, I said, that's perfect because believe it or not, Isis played and potentially still plays an important role in high magic. And of course, I can't speak for the entirety of ceremonial orders out there, but back in the late 1800s, the original members of the Golden Dawn documented their workings with Isis. In the book, Women of the Golden Dawn, Rebels and Priestesses by Mary Kay Greer, there is an interview originally printed in a New York magazine called The Humanitarian, where the order's revival of the Egyptian mysteries is discussed. McGregor Mathers, one of the Golden Dawn founders, said that it was during their study of Egyptian religion and magic that they became converts to ISIS. Isis began appearing to them in dreams and visions and through meditating on ancient symbols. Later, Mathers and others created the Temple of Isis. It says that, quote, her winged statue stood at the door of the temple room with light diffused by the shutters behind, forming an aureole around her. Flowers lay at her feet, their odor mingled with that of incense. Large drawings of Osiris, Nephthys, Horus flanked an altar to the left, upon which was a triangular-shaped Tibetan lamp of green stone that was never extinguished." End quote. There is a lot more to this story about the Golden Dawn's relationship with Isis and ancient Egypt in general, so if anyone is interested in going deeper or even just learning about the role that women played in the creation of this occult society, the book I mentioned, Women of the Golden Dawn, is an excellent source. Most of the practices and rituals of the Golden Dawn's inner order would have been lost were it not for Israel Regardie, Alistair Crowley's secretary. Regardie was not a fan of Crowley's, and he went against the rules of the order and published their highly guarded practices and rituals. Today, these books continue to be a gold mine for magicians and have never gone out of print. Besides Israel Rigardi, Aleister Crowley, Dion Fortune, Gerald Gardner, and Pamela Coleman-Smith, the well-known John Dee and Edward Kelly, who were the court magicians to Queen Elizabeth, also Evangeline Adams, who was known as America's first astrological superstar, and beloved poet W.B. Yeats were all ceremonial magicians. And if you do some internet sleuthing, you will no doubt see many more familiar names.
0: You know, I've loved Yeats's work for years and I had had no idea, so cool.
1: Yeah, well, if you love him, definitely read Women of the Golden Dawn because he's everywhere in it. There's like a bit of a love triangle going on between him and (laughs) and some of the women. Um, But in general, he played like a large role in that society. And just tying ceremonial magic in with pop culture for a moment. Uh, Sometimes I see TV shows that deal with magic and I go like, oh, you know, it's so fake. But other times I'm like, okay, someone did their research. Somebody on the writing staff is a witch or a magician because they are giving away some secrets here. And one such show that I felt like was pretty accurate when it came to their portrayal of some elements of ceremonial magic uh, is a Netflix show called The Order. And it deals with a secret society called The Hermetic Order of the Blue Rose. It is, of course, fiction, you know, like werewolves are present, et cetera. But if we go in with an open mind and Read between the lines we can pretty quickly spot the magic and the parts that are meant for us um, plus it's pretty fun so check it out if you're searching for a new magical show to watch
0: So, the term chaos magic was something that I had only heard very briefly in terms on the internet, books, and TV before researching this episode. So, listeners, if you are a practicing chaos magician or have something to share with me and Kristen, please do. I would love to hear, but until then, let's get into it. In the Chaos Cookbook, DJ Lawrence writes, chaos magic does not use a concrete theoretical focus. The emphasis in chaos magic is on the doing rather than the explaining. Thus, in chaos magic, a system of belief is a means to an end and is not an answer to the mystery of life, the universe, and everything. End quote. And on Llewellyn's blog, an article by Andre Vitimus says, quote, It is quite possible that no two chaos magicians would agree on this, But even despite that point, chaos magic is generally not what people think it is. I would argue that there is no such thing as chaos magic. There are no sets of techniques that make up chaos magic, therefore, it is not a system in and of itself. Chaos magic is an attitude, a philosophy that promotes experimentation, play, and creativity, while discarding dogmatic rules. Chaos magic points out that the techniques, more than the symbols, are what matter, and that our belief is a system, and that's what actually makes it work. The attitude discounts the idea of absolute truth and focuses instead on results within the real world. Often chaos magicians would say, nothing is true, everything is permitted, referring to the fact that you can theoretically do anything. The idea is to test different sets of techniques and figure out for yourself whether or not they work. This sort of experiential attitude fosters creativity and inventiveness and puts emphasis on results to prove a given set of techniques chaos magic is a meta-system, which means that it is a theoretical framework to fit other magical systems into so that practitioners of those systems can more easily have a shared language to foster cross-communication and experimentation across the various knowledge sets that different people present." End quote. So, in chaos magic, a personal system is never developed. What applied yesterday may be irrelevant today, and that all that matters today is what is used today. Experience can help chaos magicians figure out what would most likely be useful, but they are never confined by the concept of tradition or even coherence. To try something out of the ordinary, out of the box, outside of whatever paradigm within which you normally work, that is chaos magic but if the results become codified, then it stops being chaos magic. The power of belief is important in many magical schools of thought. Magicians impose their will upon the universe, convinced that the magic will work for it to actually work. And this approach to magic involves telling the universe what it will do. It is not as simple as just asking or hoping for something to happen. Chaos magicians must believe in whatever context they are using, and then cast aside that belief later so that they will be open to new approaches. But belief is not something you reach after a series of experiences. It is a vehicle for those experiences, self-manipulated to further a goal. Peter J. Carroll is frequently credited with quote-unquote inventing chaos magic, or at least the concept of it, he organized a variety of chaos magic groups, which sounds like a joke, <laughs> mm-hmm. organizing the chaos uh, in the late 1970s and 80s, although he eventually separated from them. His books on the subject are kind of considered the standard uh, for those who are interested in the subject. Um The story goes that in the late 1970s, Peter Carroll and Ray Sherwin, two young British occultists interested in ritual magic, began to publish a magazine called The New Equinox. Both men were connected with a burgeoning occult scene developing around the Phoenix, a metaphysical bookshop in London's East End. Having grown dissatisfied with the state of the magical arts and the deficiencies that they saw in their available occult groups, they published a small announcement in a 1978 issue of their magazine announcing the creation of the Illuminates of Thanateros, which has been described as an unprecedented attempt of institutionalizing one of the most individualizing currents in the history of Western learned magic. Carroll first published his books Liber Knoll in 1978 and Psychonaut in 1982, and they were published together in the 1987 book Liber Null and Psychonaut, which is considered one of the defining works of the chaos magic movement, which I have not read. Kristen, are you familiar with these works or these folks? No, these names are all new to me. Yeah, same. This is my first time coming across them. Seems interesting, mm-hmm. um, but the works of Austin Osmond, Spare are also considered foundational for those interested in chaos magic. Spare actually died in the 1950s before Carroll started writing, and Spare did not address an entity called chaos magic. But many of his magical beliefs have been incorporated into these theories. Spare was particularly interested in the influence of psychology on magical practice when psychology was sort of just starting to be taken seriously at this point in history. During his magical studies, Spare crossed paths with Alistair Crowley, this guy again, who took some initial steps away from ceremonial magic, the traditional system of intellectual magic, i.e. non-folk magic, like we were just talking about, up to the 20th century. So Crowley, like Spare, considered traditional forms of magic bloated and encumbering. Um, I'm taking those words (laughs) directly from the article. And he stripped away some ceremonies and emphasized the power of will in his own practice and then formed a school of magic in their own right. So, of course, I have my problems, as do many, with Crowley, a.k.a. I do not like him, but that is a story (laughs) for another day.
1: Yeah, he's um <laughs> he's problematic to say the least.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm so glad that you mentioned uh Chawin's mm-hmm. quote from earlier. It's really valuable in this conversation. Um, but looping into pop culture for a moment, I have to ask, did you watch WandaVision, Kristen?
1: No, I haven't yet.
0: Yeah, me either. But I found a Forbes article uh, linking the series in Chaos Magic. So I did a little bit of Googling. And then I found an article in Seventeen Magazine, of all places, not the Seventeen Magazine of my teenage years. But um, they talked a lot about Chaos Magic and the relation to Marvel Comics. So I'll read a little bit of that here. Quote, in the Marvel Comics, Chaos magic is considered the most powerful type of magic and almost believed to be non-existent. Chaos allows the user to not only warp someone's reality, or just reality itself, but it can also completely change it. In the Avengers comics, it was revealed that Wanda got her chaos magic from Thone, one of the Elder Gods of Earth. Wanda, who was born on Wandagore Mountain, where Thon's spirit was bound by Morgan Le Fay, was inflicted with Thon's energy when he sensed that she had magical abilities. This increased her magic even more, which otherwise would have been weak. Later on, when Wanda arrives again to Wandagore after Thon encourages her to in a dream, he uses her body as a vessel through the magic he gave to her originally. The Avengers are able to return her spirit back to her body and transfer Thone to a marionette, which they later bury under an avalanche. So, like I said, this is not the Seventeen magazine of my teenage years, but I'm here for it. And I also know what I'm going to do later tonight.
1: Maybe some nostalgia magic plus chaos magic?
0: Yes. WandaVision, here I come. (laughs) And... I would love to, Kristen, conclude our episode today with a little etymology, which I know we both love, and a quote from Chawin Ku's interview, who you mentioned, who visited with us on an episode a few weeks ago. Um, so the etymology of chaos is the gaping void, empty, immeasurable space. From the old French of chaosor, directly from Latin chaos, from Greek chaos, the abyss which gapes wide open, and that which is vast and empty. And so, of course, this reminds me of the liminal and of the crossroads, and archetypal space that we so frequently speak about, and the dominion of magic and witches. So here, a space where chaos is born is a place where magic is made, the space in between. In Chowen-Ku's Spellbound, she writes... Witches are a part of an ecosystem of chaos and unpredictability, but don't let that scare you. Witches aren't tossed about by fate. We actively change reality through ritualized interactions with patterns, the algorithms that control our world. Listeners, which is if there are different types of magic you'd like Kristen and I to explore on a future episode, or if you have thoughts or questions about chaos and ceremonial magic, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kristen Lisenby and Kate Ballou. You can find us online at Easton Alchemy and at K8 Ballou. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at com. You can view all the amazing offerings from Teamed Wild on their Instagram at teamedwild or on the blog teamedwild.com.
0: Tune into next week's episode while Kristen and I have a conversation about her homesteading journey. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it, so mote it be, or something better. Until next time.